Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hello there. Welcome to We Have Ways. This is Al Murray. I'm, I'm not with James because James, uh, as you will hear, has gone to Montesole and is right there right now walking the ground. So I'm walking down a little track. Um, it's beautiful sunshine. It's the morning of the 29th of September 2019, which means it's a 75th anniversary of the end of the Stella Rossa. And uh, something we touched upon in an earlier podcast over here with a, a group of friends... And we're walking down a track that would have been almost certainly the one used by Gianni Rossi, the second in command of the Stella Rossa Partisan Brigade, um, and Lupo, Mario Musolesi, the charismatic leader of the Stella Rossa, on the night of the 28th of September 1944. The Partisan headquarters was actually further up in the mountains, but both Gianni and Lupo had girlfriends down at Cadotto, which is a farmhouse on the kind of lower slopes. It's still quite high up from the Seta Valley, but on the lower slopes. And actually, one can still get to Cadotto today using the same track. And it's just amazing to think, here we are walking on exactly the same route. And the landscape has not changed at all. There's lots of short trees, lots of small oaks, little oaks, um, scrub. We've just seen a a wolf footprint, um, wild boar around here, all sorts of wildlife and it's very atmospheric i've got to say you know you can really imagine them walking down here on the night of the 28th you know lupo is pretty confident he thinks the front the allied front which is only kind of sort of 10 15 miles away to the south is going to be coming through any minute his oss agent lino rocco has told him to hold on to the montesoli massive come what may and uh that's what he's going to do. Others are saying, no, come on, we've got to disperse. We, dispersal is the best form of, uh, of defence, making sure that we're spread out all over the place so that no one can take any action and round us up. But Lupo says, no, I've got my orders and, and you know, I want to do what the Allies want me to do. Uh, we've got to stay here. We've got to hold this ground. Um, and so he's in confident mood. They've also recently um, just captured a bag of German mail, which shows that the Germans at the front, uh, the morale is absolutely terrible. And he really feels that the Germans are beaten that are on the run, that the Allies will be here any moment soon. And this is why he's so confident. But, but actually, he's about to get a terrible, terrible shock. Well, I've now reached Cadotto, which is a sort of collection of farmhouses, sort of semi-derelict now. Um, but this was where Lupo and Gianni Rossi came down on the night of the 28th. And Lupo did put out pickets, he did put out guards, but it was a cold night and it was starting to rain. And... Uh, when the first Germans appeared around sort of the first grey light of dawn at around sort of 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, it was misty and drizzling and not very nice. It's a gorgeous day today here, but back then, 75 years ago, it was not very nice at all. And the guard suddenly saw that he was, he was awake, but not really looking after, not really doing his job properly. Only saw the Germans too late, fired his rifle twice, the shots rang out, they were the warning signal to... Lupo and all the other partisans at Cadotto. And then uh, he was shot. And the next thing, Gianni was got out of bed where, his, where he was with his girlfriend, ran downstairs, and next to him was Leone's wife, Leone, another of the partisans. And he opened the front door, and a 
burst of German machine gun fire almost cut Leone's wife in half. And suddenly realised they were under fire and so Gianni and Leone and Lupo all ran out of the back of the house, managed to leapfrog to the barn, then to a next cluster of buildings and then made a dash for it across the sort of open ground. It's sort of vegetation and grass up to a kind of tree line 200 yards from the house. And while they were running, Gianni was hit in both arms. And as they reached the tree line, he sort of collapsed and said, I can't go any further. And Lupo said to him, stay tranquilo, you know, stay calm. They managed to catch their breath and then on they went. Lupo and Leone leading Gianni and Gianni seemed to find another kind of sort of ounce of strength. And they went off another kind of, I don't know, probably sort of 500 yards or something to the next settlement, which is called Cadorino. Now completely ruined, overgrown with trees, semi-collapsed in. But this is where they paused again before heading off and running for their lives. And it was at this point that Lupo suddenly disappeared and neither Leone nor Gianni Rossi knew where he was or what had happened to him, but suddenly he wasn't there. Meanwhile, back at the farm, actually, um, Il Colonello, who was another of the partisans, had managed to kind of get his, get his men in order and they managed to hold off the, uh, the attacking third company of the 16th Waffen SS um, Reconnaissance Battalion under SS Captain um, Wilfried Segebricht. And they couldn't make any headway. They kept attacking, then forming, you know, taking hits and casualties, retreating back into the trees and making another attack. And actually, Colonello and his men managed to hold out all that day. It wasn't until dusk and night fell that they finally left Cadotto and made a dash for it and headed to the mountains, which was their agreed mustering point. Get onto the high ground, wait for everything to calm down and then make good your escape. And that's what they did. And now we're heading back up to another part of the mountains where far worse deeds took place. So I'm now at the ruined church of Casalia and actually this wasn't destroyed on the 29th of September. This was destroyed subsequently in the winter and early spring of 1945 because this was the front line. The Germans were on top of Montesoli. And, you know, this was damaged by artillery shells, but nonetheless, this was still standing on that morning of the 29th of September. And this was where Cornelia Pazelli and her family, 202 in all, children, women, elderly, were all told to congregate in the church because they thought this is where it would be safe. Cornelia had been in Cepiano, which is a little sort of hamlet just, just below the crest here, just beyond the walled cemetery at Casalia. Um, having moved up from the valley. She was living in Gardaletta with her father, Virginio, but Virginio's brother was still farming up here as a contadino, um, a, you know, a sharecropper on, on Montesoli. And he'd served in the First World War. And Virginio felt that the safest place to be when the front was moving was not in the valley, because that's where the troops were going to be passing through, but better up on the high ground where they could be safe. And obviously they knew the mountains intimately and the intricate web of families and alliance and friendships was, you know, spread from the mountain down into the valley. So they knew if they came up here, they'd be, be looked after and find friendly faces. And so that proved to be the case. And in actual fact, Cornelia met Lupo on the afternoon of the 28th and, and saw her. And, and uh, he saw her and said, oh, you're up here. You'll be all right now before heading off down to Cadotto to see his girlfriend with um, Gianni Rossi. So they're up here and in the morning it was early and they said, you know, the men came in and said, look, you know, you're 
the, the, the Germans are attacking. There's a rastrolamento on, you know, the houses are being burned. It's the men that they're going to want. So we're going we're gonna to hide at the top of Montessori, but you all should all take shelter in the church. And so very quickly they organize themselves and gather themselves up. up. And these 200 people, of which one was Cornelia, moved to the church at Casalia. And there they waited, nervous, frightened, anxious, wondering what was going to happen. And eventually it was a bang on the door. Um, Don Ubaldo, the, the, the priest here, opened the door and there were two SS soldiers from the 3rd Company of the uh, 16th Orphan SS Reconnaissance Battalion. And they were ordered out and told to march down the road. And at this stage, Cornelia was becoming increasingly agitated and worried about what was going to happen. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I'm walking along the track that leads from the church up to the Walled Cemetery, and uh, it's only about 150, 200 yards or something like that. Uh, and I'm just pulling up beside it now, and this is where the 202 men, elderly men, women and children, were all stopped and halted by the men of the 3rd Company of the 16th Waffen SS Reconnaissance Battalion. And Cornelia suddenly started to twig what was happening. All the men had a handful of guards. They all had submachine guns. And uh, it was interesting. She just said, you know, she had this incredible instinct for survival and that she had to do something. And she just, you know, another five yards and she might be able to jump and make a dash for it and get out of the way. But she was sort of paralyzed in many ways. And after about 20 minutes, Don Ubaldo, the, uh, the priest, um, remonstrated with the, uh, with the SS guards. One of them led him away 
and Cornelia and all the others heard a single shot and then just the uh, SS soldier returned on his own and clearly Don Ubaldo had been killed. Soon after that, the Germans started shouting, Raus, Raus, uh, and ushering them into the Wool Cemetery. And one thing that Cornelia, I remember she telling me, was that she remembered seeing an SS soldier uh, help one of the elderly women amongst them across the threshold, helping her with her, taking her arm and taking her across. They were then ordered to stand up against the little chapel on the far side and line up. And again, everyone was sort of jostling. Everyone knew what was happening, and they particularly knew what was happening when two more men came in with a machine gun and ammunition boxes and set it up where I'm standing now, which is in the kind of sort of left-hand corner closest to the entrance gate, so at a, at a, at a kind of sort of a, at a diagonal angle to where they were standing, lined up. There was sort of mounting panic, murmurs... Uh, um, increasingly scared and frightened chatter. Cornelia was desperately trying to sort of jostle her way to the back. Um, with her, of course, was her mother, um, her younger sister, Giuseppina, who was 15, Cornelia was 17, and the twins, who were 11. And suddenly one of the, one of the women there who was without her baby panicked and said, like, you know, I've got to get to my baby, I've got to get to my baby, and ran towards the Germans who shot her. Uh, killed her dead, and then someone else lobbed in a grenade, and it was the blast of the grenade which knocked Cornelia over. And briefly, she was unconscious, and when she came to, bodies were falling on top of her, had already fallen on top of her, and she was absolutely soaked with blood. And the shooting continued, and she lay there under this pile of bodies, absolutely drenched, scarcely able to comprehend what had happened. It sounded like the men then left. And for a while she was silent, but her mother was calling out to her. She kept going, shh, mama, shh, trying to keep her quiet. Uh, her sister was also crying out. Uh, it turned out that her sister had been grazed on the head by a bullet, so lots of blood, but actually she was okay. But the twins were dead and her mother had been shot across the legs. And it wasn't until three o'clock that afternoon that Cornelia felt it was safe to actually move out, crawl her, herself out of underneath the bodies and see what was what. And she managed to rescue her mother and lean her against the wall. But her mother had been shot across the legs and was bleeding to death. But Cornelia had some material with her, which she'd been working on in the church. And so he tore it up and used it as strips, as uh, the strips as tourniquets, but it was not going to be able to save her mother. She then told her sister, Giuseppina, that she was going to try and get help. She gingerly moved out of the, through the gate, out onto the, onto the uh, road again, onto the trackway, and then ran for help and went all the way down, back down into the valley and went to the family home. But of course it was locked, she wasn't really thinking clearly. Then went up to another house a little bit further up, uh, just be above Gardaletta, to a farmer's house where they used to get milk. Um, and, and cheese and things and found the farmer and his wife and a lamb all shot dead uh, in the front room. So she then ran in a panic across the river setter, which was quite low at this stage of the year, and, and screaming for help. And, and a man from a house opposite urged her to be quiet and told her to come to the house. And there they locked her in and locked her in until the following Tuesday. Um, so I think it was a Saturday that the, the massacre took place 75 years ago. So on the 29th, so it wasn't until the 2nd of October that she was allowed out. And when she came back up, she found her sister, realised her mother had died, and her sister, Giuseppina, had been raped by um, a German soldier. 
but was still alive. And her sister, Josepina, told her what had happened. And apparently her father, Virginia, had, had seen it all from the top of Montesoli. And that night had come down um, and pressed his face against the, uh, the iron gate, then come, and come inside and just assumed that all his family had been killed. He hadn't seen his wife, whose life was slipping away from her as she leant against the wall of the cemetery. And later she spoke to Giuseppina, who had gone out to get help. And she said, your father was here. I saw his face. I saw his face pressed against the iron railings. And she just thought it was her mother, her life slipping away and, and becoming sort of delirious. But actual fact, she really had. The tragedy is that Virginia had not, Virginia had not been able to say goodbye to his wife. And I've got to say, you know, standing here now, it is, it is just so profoundly moving to be here. It's a beautiful afternoon, but, you know, you can still see bullet holes on the crosses, um, bullet holes against the wall of the chapel where they were lined up. The whole place has been tarted up and repointed and the walls cleaned up and everything, but they are still there, the relics of what happened. Um, and it is, it's just incredibly upsetting. You just can't believe this happened. You know, I was fortunate enough to talk to Cornelia, who is in fact still alive. But, you know, these little massacres, 202 people here, 191 killed. This was being repeated all across the mountain. And, you know, 775, 780, I think it was, who were killed here over several days. You know, that is the largest civilian massacre anywhere in Western Europe. It's bigger, it's more people killed than at Orador in France. It's more than were killed at Lodici, outside Prague. You know, it's a terrible, terrible event that happened. And yet it's so, it's so unknown. You know, it's sort of largely forgotten. It's amazing. So we just climbed up to the top of Montesoli. It's a, it's a good 15-minute hard walk. Or you could take it a little bit slower, I suppose, and get here in 20 or 25. But, you know, it's making the heart go a little bit. And at the top, of course, there's a monument to the, to the Stella Rosso with a red star at the top of it. And scratched into the, into the granite or the marble, at the bottom is two victory signs, two Vs, and then it says... Il Lupo. And the date's 29th of the 9th, 1944. So here we are on the 75th anniversary. To eternal glory of the partisans who were here and fought for the existence of liberty and independence of Italy on these mountains. It's, um, it's very moving. And I'm here with my great pal, uh, Guy Walters, fellow historian. And Guy, we've just come from the Wald Cemetery. I mean, it is, it is really moving, isn't it? And, and, and particularly since it's such a little-known story. It's an incredibly little-known story as I get my breath back. <laughs> I, I, um, it, it's, it's a word that you see in newspapers, Marzabotto, and you hear of a massacre. And somehow, you know, in, in the level of millions who died in the Second World War, you hear these massacres. Um, and the numbers, you know, when they're in the low hundreds or even in the mid-hundreds, they, they seem small in a way and that's a terrible terrible thing to think because we're so used to hearing about it we're used to hearing about millions of people in the holocaust and yet when you've taken us just as we've done to that walled cemetery and you stand in the place and you see the bullet holes in the crosses the gravestones the the nicks of masonry taken out of a wall and you realize that those are the bullets that missed and there were plenty of bullets that hit and i think you told me it was what, 192 191 uh, killed, 192 killed, 202 killed, 202 killed, so. killed and, and 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 in a space 
um, which is really no bigger than the ground floor of, of a reasonably large house or, or a sort of medium-sized garden. It's not a big area. Half a tennis court, something About like that? About half a tennis court, exactly that. And, and to put a, a machine gun there and hand grenades in this enclosed walled space and the devastation that's going to do on, on, on women and children and indeed of course on anybody um, but it's you know we still feel it even more dreadfully and you know it's women and children it's incredibly powerful and just to come and walk up to the top of this peak it is really the least that one can do in, in memory of those poor poor people 75 years ago today and you and standing here you know you would have had a clear view back in 1944 of that cemetery from up here and just imagine if you'd been Virginia Pazelli, looking down and realising that it was your family down there who'd been marched from that church at Casalia, pushed into that wall cemetery and then shot. I mean, you, you know, it's no wonder he's demented with grief, is you, it? You would be. Now, as we know, we're, we're on top of this, this mountain, and as we know, sound travels upwards. And, you know, you can hear a motorbike, you know, backfiring probably about three or four miles away. So the idea of hearing the gunfire, it would have probably felt even noisier than it would have been on ground level if you were just below the cemetery. And to know, if I'm trying to imagine my, my wife and daughter down there, just a 15-minute walk, but probably literally you could probably almost throw a rock to it, it feels that close, would, it, would, would, would drive you absolutely insane and mad with grief and terror and horror. And uh, I, can't, I can't even begin to, to empathise with that. Who could? And it's amazing to be up here because we're on a... It, I mean, the views are absolutely stupendous this afternoon. I mean, you can literally see forever. You know, I'm looking across at Monte Salvaro. I'm looking down towards the Reno Valley. On the other side is the Setter Valley. I mean, it is, a, it is an incredibly beautiful and sort of little known to people, that I think, certainly in Britain and America. It's a very little known landscape and part of northern Italy, but it's stunningly beautiful. But on that day, the 29th of September 1944, you know, it was low cloud, there was drizzle, um, it was pretty miserable. But what you'd have also seen snaking up is the smoke from tens, twenty, hundreds of houses all burning one after the other as the rastrellamento gathered pace and the German troops kind of sort of enclosed their net around the Montesoli Massive. I mean, what a different view that must I, have been. I can imagine, as you were saying, this is a sort of dreadful irony about the events that took place here because what, we're now in Emilia Romana, correct? Right. And we're just south of Bologna. And, and it, it's a part of the world that it's almost a sort of of jocular fun for when you describe the British and English middle classes who come to this place on holiday and if you're standing on top of this hill seeing fires burning today you would be uh, thinking that's a, a charming farmer burning yes. his autumnal uh, silage whatever it is and, and, and of course what those fires would have re represented 75 years ago uh, would have been death destruction and, and, and sheer horror and, and, you know, I'm looking at this view now. It, it is, as you say, it is absolutely beautiful. And do you always think, when you think of these massacres and murders and, and these horrors, you, you want the landscape to reflect that. You want the landscape to be horrible and black and pitch and, uh, and, and, and with, you know, still yet carrying these terrible scars. And, of course, the irony here, it's one of the most beautiful parts, literally, of the planet. And yet some of the most horrific things went on here. And just very briefly, I sort of feel the same. I went to, I went to Auschwitz-Birkenau. And, and the town of Oswiecim is, is a lovely town. And people forget that. These terrible horrors happen in beautiful places as well. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hashtag we have ways. Email if you're old and slow. We like doing these little specials. And also there's James's, he's just up to his eyeballs in air, air miles, basically. See you next time. Mm -hmm.